Welcome to the BIOS podcast by Elix Ventures. BIOS is a community of early stage healthcare and life sciences founders and investors. BIOS curates content, hosts events, crafts resources, and creates a community to facilitate collaboration. BIOS unites like-minded members of the startup universe and is anchored by Alix Ventures, a San Francisco-based venture fund that invests in early-stage healthcare and life sciences companies. To learn more about us, visit bios.community or alix.vc. everyone. My name is Jingyi Liu. I am an MBA student at Wharton, and I have with me my colleague Eric Dai. Hey, my name is Eric. Um, I'm one of the hosts for BIOS, and it's uh, great to have you here today, Jingyi and Sean. So we're super excited to have Sean Gandhi uh, visit us today on the BIOS podcast. And I wanted to do a quick introduction for Sean before we delve into the meat of our discussion. So Sean is a director at North Pond Ventures and also leads the firm's work in biotechnologies. As part of his work at North Pond, Sean is a board director at Stride Bio, Aerobiotherapeutics, Candel Therapeutics, Dice Molecules, Triumvira Immunologics, and Digital Neuroscience. Previously, Sean was a principal at the Longwood Fund, where he created and invested in life sciences companies, including Pixis Oncology, a cancer immuno company focused on novel modulators of the tumor, tumor microenvironment, which he co-founded and served as president. And prior to Longwood, he was an attending hospitalist at Massachusetts General Hospital, where he also did his residency in internal medicine. Uh, previously, he was a chief medical officer of Wellable, a mobile corporate wellness startup. He holds an MD from Harvard Medical School, an MBA from Harvard Business School, where he was a Baker Scholar, a DPhil in medical oncology from the University of Oxford, where he was a Rhodes Scholar and a BS with honors in biochemistry from Case Western Reserve University. So welcome, Sean. We're super excited to have you here on the BIOS podcast, and we're really excited to have this conversation with you. Thanks so much. Thanks for having me. So, Sean, you know, when we met a few years ago at HMS, you were still in residency. And it's been really great to see your career grow in such a short amount of time. You've, you know, built an incredible and inspiring and diverse career spanning biotherapeutics, health IT, and also within the functions of physician, investor, as well as entrepreneur. So you're currently a director at North Pond Ventures, where you lead the firm's biotech investments. Can you tell us a little bit more about your work there and the journey which led you to your current role? Absolutely. No, again, it's uh, thanks so much for for having me, and it's it's great to it's great to be here. So I, as you said, I'm a director at North Pond Ventures. North Pond is an early to mid stage life sciences venture capital firm that's uh, headquartered out just outside of Washington D.C. in Bethesda, Maryland, but with um, offices in Cambridge, Massachusetts, which is where I'm based, as well as in San Francisco. And the way that North Pond sees the universe is that life sciences is a very broad enterprise. When most people think about life sciences and they think about innovation in life sciences, they tend to focus a lot on therapeutics. And, you know, that's a big, that's a big part of what life sciences research goes into, developing the next generation of drugs and devices that the world needs to treat the diseases that still, that, that still challenge the world. But we see the life sciences universe as going beyond therapeutics. It's also looking to all of the pieces that flow into the development of those novel drugs, those novel devices. So when you think about 
the research that's done to develop a new drug, you obviously need tools in order to do that research. You need DNA sequencers and analyzers, protein analyzers, mass spectrometers. Um, you need advanced micro, uh, microscopes, advanced cell culture systems. Um, and once you actually make the drug, you need tools in order to make it at scale. You need chemical synthesis equipment. You need uh, cell culture equipment. You need gene and cell therapy manufacturing reactors. And so we see these pieces as being just as important as the actual discovery of the drug itself. We need to support and back the next generation of tools that allows us to then discover the next generation of drugs. And, and so that's a big part of what we do at North Pond as well. We also look at the, at the diagnostic space as well. So of course, kind of bridging the gap between the discovery of drugs and the actual distribution and use of the drug. Of course, we want to make sure that when we have a patient who is in need of a therapy, that we are giving that person the right therapy at the right time and for the right disease. It doesn't help anyone if we give a drug to someone where it doesn't help them or it actually could potentially cause harm. And so increasingly, we are using molecular diagnostics in a clinical setting in order to identify which patients would benefit the most from which drugs and which devices. And again, that's part and parcel of what it means to innovate in life sciences. You not only need the therapeutic itself that actually carries out the it carries out the function you need in order to treat the disease and treat the patient. You need the tools in order to discover that drug. And then you need the diagnostic in order to match the right drug to the right patient. And, and so that's how we see the world um, at North Pond. And so if you look at our team, we have different investors that focus on different aspects of the broader life sciences ecosystem. I happen to focus a lot on therapeutics, but we have frequent discussions internally across all of those different facets of our, of, our, uh, of our investment thesis to make sure that we are truly appreciating all the innovation that's happening out there in, in the life sciences ecosystem. And so how did I, kind of to the second half of your question of how I came to where I am, it was a bit of a progressive revelation that I wanted to be in the life sciences innovation space. It, started in graduate school where I did a lot of work in oncology and in stem cell biology and realized the power of what basic and translational science can do in order to develop novel therapies in order to treat disease, um, diseases for which we didn't have treatments at the time. And then in medical school, I learned an incredible amount of information and knowledge about what it takes to actually treat patients, what it actually takes to diagnose disease, and, and what it takes to actually get the drug into the hands of the right patients so that they can get better. And then in, in residency and in clinical practice, I trained in internal medicine. Internal medicine is the use is primarily focused on the use of drugs in order to treat a broad array of diseases in adults. And as I practiced, I realized that my abilities as an internist were limited by the tools I had at my disposal. If I had a patient with an incredibly recalcitrant disease for which they've tried, we've tried multiple lines of therapy and none of them have worked, 
I'm not a surgeon. I can't actually physically go in there and try to solve the disease with my hands as a surgeon can do in, in an operation. I am limited by the drugs that are available. And so the more, the more experiences I had with those types of circumstances, the more I realized that the type of impact that I wanted to have in medicine and in life sciences was really on the drug development side, which is how do we put more tools into the toolboxes of physicians so that they can treat more patients or they could treat patients better. And, and so that's how I came to the venture capital world and how I came to the life sciences innovation world. It gave me an opportunity to work with a number of really exciting, really interesting, really innovative therapeutics companies, some of, some of which I think we're probably hopefully going to talk about later on. It gives me an opportunity to work with them and to back them and to support them as they try to make the drugs that the world needs. That's awesome, Sean. Thanks so much for that introduction of both North Bond and then also of your career arc. Um, and I wanted to ask you a little bit more about your, um, I guess, like any pivotal moments for you that kind of changed your perspective about how you were thinking about your career. Absolutely. It's it's not so much an anecdote, but there, there were some observations that I made, particularly during, during my residency training that really, I think, pushed me onto the path that I am today. And probably the biggest observation was with respect to cancer care. So I trained at Mass General. We have a, we have a couple floors in the hospital that are devoted to the treatment of patients with cancer. Um, these are all inpatient floors. And so typically uh, the patients who are on these floors are very ill because of their cancer or because of a disease that they um, have that the cancer allowed to happen. So say like an infection um, or some metabolic disturbance. And so I started residency training in the summer of 2015. And just prior to the start of my residency training, there was a revolution that was brewing within oncology care, and that was the immunotherapy revolution, where we understood for the first time that the immune system was incredibly important in how the body typically controls cancer. It's the big reason why all of us don't just get tumors all the time. It's our immune system is able to pick up on the start of certain tumor cells and then they're able to eliminate it. And we also started understanding that tumors have figured out ways of hijacking our body's immune response in order to cloak themselves from that immune response. And as a result, they can grow uncontrollably and our immune system has no way of fighting back. So a lot of these discoveries were made very early on, but it was in the late 90s and 2000s where we started understanding the real mechanisms of how tumors evade the immune response and how we can actually manipulate that immune response with drugs in order to retrain the immune system to target the tumor and then hopefully eliminate the tumor. So I started residency in the summer of 2015. The first few drugs that were developed using this immunotherapy approach um, had just been approved maybe the few years prior. So the first immunotherapy drug was a 
drug called um, ipilimumab or Yervoy that was approved in 2011, I believe, um, that targeted uh, a that targeted a receptor on T cells called CTLA4. Um, then there were two other drugs which are probably even more prominent that target another receptor on T cells called PD1. Uh, the first was a drug called nivolumab or um, Evo. And then the second is a drug called pembrolizumab or Keytruda. Uh, I believe nivolumab was approved in 2013 and then Keytruda uh, pembrolizumab was approved in 2014. And so when I started in residency, these drugs had just gotten approved. Um, a lot of patients still were getting it through clinical trials, but by and large, they weren't widely available yet. The the Merck and BMS, the companies that were making the drugs, they just started ramping up production and started distributing them. And so I can remember distinctly my first year of residency being on those inpatient oncology floors, taking care of patients with, with cancer of just how horrific their tumors were, how, how challenging those tumors were for them, how challenging they were for their families. I mean, I can distinctly remember there was a patient I cared for as a first year resident who was not much older than me. I think he was 34 or 35. Uh, he was married. He had two children and he unfortunately had been diagnosed with metastatic melanoma and, and the disease had progressed so far that the current treatments we had weren't working for him. And so as a result, we were caring for him in the hospital essentially to make him comfortable uh, because his tumor had, his disease had progressed so, so much that there was nothing we could do at that point. And so we, the decision was at the very least, if we can't do anything for his cancer, maybe at least we can make him comfortable. And, and so that's what I did caring for him. I basically made him comfortable and not to put too fine a point on it. I watched him I watched him, his cancer, and he was not alone. There were many, many other patients that I cared for where their disease had progressed to a point where we didn't really have any additional tools at our disposal. And so we were essentially caring for them, caring for their symptoms and, and making them comfortable. Fast forward three years. So I went back to the oncology wards as a third year resident uh, and so this would have been 2018. Nivolumab, pembrolizumab, ipilimumab had, have now kind of broadly, are now being broadly used in oncology to treat a variety of diseases, including melanoma, including non-small cell lung cancer, including many other tumors. And so returning to the oncology wards as a senior resident after only three years, I mean, not even three years actually, and seeing the significant difference in the patients that I was caring for where I wasn't caring as much. I, I, there weren't as many patients on my floor who had these really horrific tumor tumors that were causing significant morbidity, causing significant distress. We were seeing a lot of patients getting cured because of immunotherapy. And so they were never even getting admitted into the hospital because they were diagnosed with melanoma or non-small cell lung cancer or another tumor. They were able to get nivolumab or pembrolizumab and the tumor disappeared. 
their immune system was able to control the tumor, tumor disappeared, they were cured, they got to go home and spend time with their families and their friends, and they didn't have to go to the hospital. And all of that happened over a three year period of time, this massive sea change and how we treat cancer. I mean, it's to the point where the co-discoverers of those two receptors, CTLA-4 and PD-1, they were awarded the Nobel Prize in 2018, um, Tasuku Hanjo and Jim Allison. It was such a fundamental change and shift in how we treat cancer, where we had patients previously literally dying on our service because there was nothing more we could do for them to now getting cured and going home and living their lives such a massive shift in how we treat cancer. And that all happened just in three years, just during my training, where the lessons I learned about cancer care at the beginning of my training now were not as relevant when I was a third year resident because the drugs had changed. And so the way in which we approach disease had changed. And so that really impressed upon me how powerful biomedical innovation is. There were scientists, there were uh, venture capitalists, there were biotech leaders who made these drugs a reality that took the discoveries of Hanjo and Allison and made drugs that actually, that could really help people. And, and I saw that within, in, in a three-year time period, such a sea change. And so that really impressed upon me how transformative life sciences innovation can really be where you can actually make drugs that can fundamentally change how we treat a disease and fundamentally change patients' lives for the better. And so I think that observation among many, there are of course many observations, but I think that one really stuck in my head of here's a place where I can have impact and have potentially have impact on hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people. If I'm able to help in, in whichever way I can, I'm able to help catalyze additional innovation in biopharma in the biotechnology industry to make these drugs that people need, that we could have scenarios like we see with immunotherapy where patients who otherwise would not have survived their disease are now surviving and even thriving. Sean, that's really beautiful. Um, thanks for sharing. Um, so what, what, one of your first uh, really big pushes into this space of on the oncological revolution that you, you touched on in that story is serving as the co-founder and president of Pixis Oncology, which is an immuno-oncology company. Absolutely. Um, can, can you please tell us a bit about the journey behind founding Pixis and what the process from ideation to validation to creation was like? Absolutely. You know, it, it, Pixis was a really fun, it was a really fun journey. And I got to work with some really great people um, at Longwood, including uh, David Steinberg and Christoph Westfall and, and, and uh, John Flavin, um, as well as, as well as some really amazing scientists, most prominently Tom Gajewski of the University of Chicago. So the the process for starting PIX has actually started many months, I think at least 12 to 18 months before the company actually launched. And it really came out of a series of conversations that 
we had uh, with with Dr. Gajewski, where Dr. Gajewski, is a, he's a world-renowned um, cancer immunotherapy uh, scholar, researcher, and physician. He was actually one of the individuals who discovered the role of T-cell dysfunction in, in solid tumors. So to describe it, to describe it simply, one of the ways in which tumors are able to evade the immune system is they signal to the immune cells, most prominently the T cells to shut down and to not become as active. And, and so different words that people use to describe the state of these T cells. Some people say dysfunction, some people say exhaustion, um, but fundamentally these, these immune cells are not working as they should. And, and so Dr. Gajewski had identified a way to profile these dysfunctional T cells to understand what is going on biologically within them that is making them not as active as they should. And, and so he developed a number of models in animals in order to understand how these T cells are functioning or not, dis, are not functioning. And then he went on to identify certain receptors and pathways that were activated in these dysfunctional T cells. And his hypothesis was maybe if we made a drug against one of these receptors or against one of these pathways, we could potentially activate these T cells, make them more active, and then hopefully they would go and target the tumor for elimination. And so the process of starting Pixos was really having these conversations over a, a period of time to really understand exactly what the discovery was, kind of what, what exactly, how exactly did, did we discover these receptors? Did we discover these pathways? How exactly did we identify these dysfunctional T cells? And then more importantly, if we were to make a drug, which receptor, which pathway would be, would give us the highest likelihood of success, not only for making a drug that actually works, but also making a drug that would deliver, hopefully, a very meaningful improvement in the lives of patients who would be taking them. So, and I think this is actually common to a lot of, a lot of other founding stories in biotechnology, where there is a lot of ideation iteration that occurs at the outset to figure out, well, here's your, here's your scientific platform. This is what you could do with it. Well, what should we actually do with it? What target should we go after? What pathway should we go after? Are there other data we can find from the literature in order to support the selection of one particular approach over another? Um, and, and are there other data we can gather from the literature to figure out if we were to make a drug, how could it actually be used in the clinic? What patients could potentially benefit? What diseases could you potentially treat? How would you use the drug in the in the clinical treatment paradigm? So there was a lot of there was a lot of brainstorming and ideation that occurred at the outset at Pixis, and I think this is true for a lot of biotech companies to figure out what all these what all these steps are, because what you need to do to start a company in the biotechnology industry is you need to come with a specific approach, a specific way 
in which you're going to develop your drug or device. And what I mean by specific approach is what are you targeting? Why is that, why is that receptor or, or target or pathway important? How will modulating that particular biology lead to hopefully a therapeutic effect? How will you, what experiments will you, will you do in order to prove that your hypothesis is correct? And then how will you design your clinical trial, design your companion diagnostic, design your clinical endpoints such that you can prove your hypothesis in people as you proved your hypothesis in, in, in animals and in, in preclinical models. And, and so all of that work really has to happen at the outset. And, and so that's, and so that's what we did for gosh, at least a year um, at Pixis is trying to figure out exactly which tumor types, which targets, how would we develop this drug? What type of drug would we want to do? Um, because you can either, you can either try to develop an antibody. Uh, so it's a, a biologic that would bind to a receptor, or you could develop a small molecule, a particular chemical. They each have their own pros and cons. Um, by and large, antibodies are easier to discover but harder to manufacture. Um, small molecules are harder to discover, but easier to manufacture. Um, and so you kind of have to pick which side of that, which side of that equation you want to be on. And, and so once we, once we had identified particular targets, the particular tumors that we wanted to focus on, the particular types of patients who we think could benefit the most from this type of treatment, then we had to come up with an experimental plan. What experiments do we need to do in what order? How much would all of this cost? Um, what types of contingencies we would need in case the experiments don't go according to plan or the target ends up being much more challenging than, than what we had thought initially? Um, and also who would be doing these experiments? So I'm sure you and a lot of listeners know in, in the biotechnology industry, we now have many contract research organizations that can carry out a lot of experiments. And so you don't necessarily have to do the experiments yourself. You can have a CRO do the experiments on your behalf. So which experiments should you do on your, on your own? Which ones should you send out to a CRO or should you even use a CRO? So those were all, those were all questions that we, we tried to figure out um, at the outset. And once, once we had figured out a lot of those questions, or at least we had hypotheses of how we would go about addressing those questions, we then put that all together into a PowerPoint deck, illustrating the evolution of the platform and, and our thought process for how we think this platform could actually lead to meaningful therapeutics. And we spoke with a number of investors and, and walked them through the data that were collected, walk them through the experiments that we think still needed to be done, and really worked with them to figure out whether this was a platform, this was an approach that was meaningful to them. And in the end, after about six or so months of those types of discussions with investors, we were fortunate to put together a, a Series A financing um, of $22 million dollars. Um, where Longwood, the fund that was at, contributed part of the capital, and then a couple other investors contributed the rest, including Bayer Leaps, the venture arm of Bayer Pharmaceuticals, as well as Agent Capital and Ipsen Ventures. So it was a really, it was a really fun experiment, and it really, I mean, I, and I've done this a few times at this point, but 
it's every time you do it, it's just so phenomenal to see the evolution of this idea from some scientific observations to this is what the drug looks like. Like this is, this is how it'll work. This, these are the patients we'd use it for. This is how we tell whether a patient would actually benefit from it or not. Just that, that translation piece is, it's so fascinating and so exciting. And I, again, after doing it a few times, I completely appreciate why entrepreneurship and life sciences is so enthralling. It's why entrepreneurship, I think in general is so enthralling. You, you start, you start with some foundational idea of how the world works or, or how people need a particular service or people need a particular good and how you can iterate on that in order to develop something that is truly valuable for, for the world. Sean, thank you so much for sharing. And, and just for the education of our viewers who may not be as, as up to date with the news, um, PIX has actually just recently closed a $152 million Series B uh, led by investors, including Perceptive, RA Capital, Pfizer, and a host of others. And uh, really exciting to see um, the work that uh, you helped launch in a lot of ways taking off and, and moving one step closer to impacting patients in a, in a revolutionary way. So super exciting there. You know, it's, um, it's super, it's super exciting. It's like, uh, it, it's like you, you, you have a child and you see the child like lift its head for the first time and crawl for the first time. And, and now, now I'm seeing the child run and it's just, it's so exciting. It's so exciting to see it. It's like uh, it's taking off the training wheels here and really exactly exactly yeah. beautiful moment. Um, we'd love to move on uh, to another series of investments that you've made as a director at North Pond. Um, so I'm going to pass off to my host uh, Jingyi, co-host Jingyi. Thanks so much, Eric. Yeah. So you know, wanted you've uh, you spent some of your career now at North Pond and prior to that at Longwood, but I wanted to focus on the investments that you've made uh, more recently at North Pond. So in Aero and Candel, Dice, uh, Triumvira, Vigil, Neuroscience, as well as Stride Bio. Uh, maybe we'll start off with like the uh, maybe as like a natural transition point. We'll start off with the immune oncology investments that you made in Candel and uh, Triumvira. And could you just talk? to us a little bit more about um, how you decided to invest in those companies and sort of what the overarching or in broad strokes, what the thesis was for um, Candel and Triumvera. Absolutely. So Candel, so for, for the record, um, my firm North Pond invested in Candel before I joined North Pond. But I will say that Candel's platform is incredibly interesting and innovative. And, and so I'm obviously very excited to, to work with them. I think Candel is a great example. So the, the basis of Candel's platform is they use this type of therapeutic called an oncolytic virus. It's basically a weakened virus that doesn't cause an infection, but it does infect it doesn't cause a broad infection. So like patients don't get sick because of the virus. Uh, but what the virus does do is in, it infects tumor cells specifically and causes those tumor cells to die. And, in the, and as a result of that, not only are you getting an elimination of the tumor directly, but when the tumor cells die, they all of the bits that are inside the cell spill out and, and so the patient's immune system now can see those bits of protein and bits of nucleic acid 
And because it came from a tumor cell, it's different than what we typically have in our cells. And so the immune system recognizes those bits as being foreign. And as a result, the immune system will target it for destruction. And so this oncolytic virus, this oncolytic virus approach not only leads to some degree of direct tumor cell killing, but more importantly, it exposes the tumor cell antigens, the, the like the bits of protein that are that are expressed by the tumor. Uh, uh, it it shows those and it presents those antigens to the immune system. And so the immune system can actually go in and clear up the rest of the tumor and hopefully lead to a, a long lasting durable response where the tumor is completely eliminated. And I think Candela is a great example of how our thinking in immunotherapy has evolved, where some of the initial work in, in the immunotherapy space, and it's still pretty common today, is how do we turn on uh, how do we turn on immune cells that are that were off or that are dysfunctional, that are exhausted in order to then go after the tumor again? But there are other aspects to how the immune system recognizes and reacts to tumor. There's this famous diagram called the cancer immunity cycle. Um, there was a paper published in Cell by uh, Chen and Melman um, that focused on the different steps that are required for the immune system to recognize a tumor and then eliminate it. And so one of the first steps actually in that cycle is the recognition of those antigens as being non-self. So in order for the immune system to realize that there's a cancer there, it has to know that it has to actually be able to see it. And the way our immune system sees tumor or sees um, an infection or anything else that's foreign is it has to see those bits of protein that the disease makes, those antigens, has to be able to see them. And so now there's actually a lot of work focused on that aspect of the, of, of the immune response of how do we get more tumor antigen to be exposed so that hopefully the immune system will see one of those antigens, realize that it's foreign, and then target the tumor for destruction. Um, so that's the basis for Candel, and it's actually a big area of work for us of how do we, how do we, are there better ways in which we can present those antigens, we can expose those antigens so that the immune system can do what it naturally does. It recognizes the antigen as foreign and then eliminates the source of the antigen, which in this case is tumor. So we're really excited about Candel and, and the data that they've generated in prostate cancer demonstrating this, this effect that you can actually expose those antigens and, and it can lead to very, very potent elimination of the tumor and a long lasting response. So that's, that's, what's really exciting about, that's, what's really exciting about Candel. Triumvir is actually a little bit different. So Triumvir, so Candel is focused on, uh, focused on, it's an oncolytic virus platforms focused on exposing those antigens. Triumvir is focused on cell therapy. And, and so for, for listeners who aren't as familiar with cell therapy, instead of the idea is instead of trying to train your own immune cells to, um, in order to target the tumor, what if you could just engineer them to do it automatically? You, if you knew what the antigen was, what if you could just take a patient's T cells 
and engineer them to recognize that cancer antigen and then put them back into the patient. Those T cells will then immediately recognize those antigens as foreign and then target, target those cells for destruction. And so that's the idea behind oncology cell therapy. And we have a number of drugs now which are approved for use in mostly in hematologic malignancies uh, such as lymphoma and leukemia. Um, but a big challenge in cell therapy is how do you use this for solid tumors, which are kind of more than 80% of the tumors out there. Um, when I say solid tumors, it's the, the cancer that most people think of when, when I say the word cancer. So breast cancer, lung cancer, brain cancer, those are all solid tumors. And the challenge that T cells have um, when they, when they encounter a solid tumor is it's, it's an, actually another aspect of the cancer immunity cycle, which is all of these barriers that the tumor puts up in order to prevent T cells from, from getting into the tumor and then targeting the tumor for destruction. And so what Triumvir has figured out is they've figured out a novel structure that they can engineer into the, into T cells in order to help those T cells resist those suppressive effects of the tumor microenvironment and make those T cells strong enough and robust enough to continue, uh, continue targeting uh, tumor cells for destruction. And so uh, with Triumvir, they have some really, really amazing data um, in breast cancer, particularly for breast cancer that expresses a known antigen called HER2, um, where Triumvir's cell therapy really can eliminate pretty much all HER2 positive cells. And so we're really excited to back them and, and we're excited to see where their progress goes in bringing the promise of cell therapy to solid tumors. That's awesome, Sean. And just for just for context purposes, for our listeners of the podcast, um, Kendall is in in a couple of late stage uh, clinical trials at this point in time for phase three, not only for prostate cancer, as you had mentioned, but also um, for pancreatic cancer, as well as high grade glioma. So lots of unmet medical need there. And we're really excited to see what their what their um, upcoming phase three results are. And then also for um, Triumvira, I, you know, I noticed that um, you, you touched on sort of one unmet medical need that they're trying to fulfill, which is in the solid tumor space. And then I also noticed that they're um, not they're not only trying to make autologous um, T cells, but also allogeneic as well. And so sort of looking forward exactly. to that um, uh, perhaps some resolution to the manufacturing bottleneck that we see, mm-hmm. see often in cellular therapies um, being uh, being resolved by Triumvira. Absolutely. Um, so Sean, you, um, so just as a transition from our discussion about the immuno-oncology investments, um, thank you for that, for, for that context. And I want to transition a little bit more now to um, one of your other portfolio companies, which is DICE. So DICE Molecules is a company developing oral formulations of injectable immunomo- immunology medications, such as IL-17. And their goal is to generate medicines that are not only efficacious, safe, and convenient, but also has the potential to reach a broader patient population. And so, first of all, can you tell us a little bit more about what led you to invest in DICE? Absolutely. So DICE, Dice is a really interesting company. It's based on uh, based on pioneering technology by Pear Harbury of Stanford University. And it's focused on this type of drug discovery tool called um, DNA encoded libraries. So the idea is 
going back to going back to a comment I made earlier about how challenging it is to make small molecule therapeutics. One of the most challenging aspects of making small molecule therapeutics is just creating a broad enough library that could potentially bind to your target of interest. And so with a DNA encoded library, um, you basically create this gigantic trillion member library and wash all of these different small molecules over your target of interest and see what sticks. And you use DNA barcodes, which are attached to each of these small molecules in order to figure out which molecule stuck. And then you can tell how tightly they bind. And, and so you can go from there in order to identify potential, um, potential small molecule leads that you can then hopefully turn into drugs. So what Dr. Hardbury figured out is that you can actually apply an iterative process to the, the small molecule bind to the target because you, you can quickly figure out that there'll be commonalities among all of the different small molecules that stick to the target. And once you figure out what those commonalities are, you can start to iterate on those, on those structures. You can, you can stick on some different functional groups. You can swap out different atoms and, and see if you can improve the binding affinity and improve the, improve the, the value of the hits that you identify from the screen. And so this process is called directed chemical evolution. And, and what's really interesting about it is you can use it to identify and, and, and discover small molecules against targets that up until that point, people thought would be really challenging to discover small molecules against. And the beauty of a small molecule, as opposed to say a biologic is because it's a chemical and not a protein, you can make it into a pill. It's easy to manufacture. You can make it bioavailable. Um, if it needs to, if you need to make a drug that acts in the brain, small molecules can typically cross the blood brain barrier biologics. It's very challenging to do so. So there are a lot of advantages to discovering small molecules. And so what DICE figured out is a way of making that early discovery process much easier and much faster so that you can really capitalize upon the positive attributes of small molecules in order to develop better drugs. And so that's what got North Pond and us very excited about DICE. And, and what, we're, what we're really excited about now is their lead program that targets a particular a particular cytokine called IL-17. And IL-17 is very important because it is frequently overexpressed in, in um, patients who have certain autoimmune diseases like psoriasis or rheumatoid arthritis. And so there are a number of drugs that actually exist today that target IL-17. The challenge with those drugs is that they're all biologics, they're all proteins. And so as a result, patients who their disease actually responds quite well to an IL-17 inhibitor, they have to get injections. And I'm sure like, you know, I'm, I'm a physician, I've given hundreds, if not thousands of injections, they're not fun. Like even, even if, even if it's super fast, even if you can pop into your doctor's office and get the injection and go home, or maybe you can get the injection at home, you can give it to yourself. It's still not fun to stick needles in your skin. Uh, it's, it can sometimes be painful. It can be inconvenient. Um, and, and so what is way more convenient is a pill where you don't have to stick anything in your skin. You, you take it, um, in the morning or whenever it's just so much easier to use. But up until, up until now, if your disease, 
um, responds well to an IL-17 inhibitor, in order for you, in order for you to have, in order for your disease to be controlled, in order for your psoriasis or a rheumatoid arthritis to be improved, you have to subject yourself to injections. And again, that's just not fun. So what DICE is doing is developing a small molecule version of an IL-17 inhibitor. And, and, and thus, if it works, which we hope it does, uh, patients will be able to take a pill and it, it will just be far more convenient, far more comfortable for the patient. They don't have to see their doctor as often. Um, they don't have to go into a healthcare setting as often. They can do it in the privacy of their own homes. They can take care of their health. And I think this is, this is indicative of a broader mission of the biotechnology industry, which is how do we use science in order to help our patients live better lives? This is really informed by a lot of my experiences I had as a clinician where I've taken care of many patients for whom the drugs they take are they're very challenging to take. Maybe they're taking many of them. And so it's hard to keep all of them straight. Um, maybe they have to take drugs over a long period of time. And, and so it's hard to remember sometimes when to take things and when to take, when not to take things. And so there's a major role for the biopharmaceutical industry to develop drugs that make it easier for patients to care for themselves and to make it easier for them to live the lives that they want, where maybe we can replace injections with pills. Maybe we can replace uh, thrice daily or twice daily pills with once a day. Maybe there are ways in which we can we can have a, a, like a depot injection or a long acting drug so that you don't have to remember to take something every day or you have, don't have to remember to take something every week. And a lot of those, a lot of those insights are borne out by really understanding what patients go through and, and trying to make that process and try, um, trying to make that so much better. I mean, you even think about it, even think about it from a distribution standpoint. We see this year, of course, millions of people across the world are getting COVID-19 vaccines. The two first vaccines that were developed, one was developed by Pfizer and BioNTech, the other was developed by Moderna. Both of them were mRNA vaccines. In one case with Pfizer and BioNTech's vaccine, the way in which they manufactured their vaccine, it required an ultra cold storage chain where vaccines had to be stored at minus 80 degrees Celsius. And so not every hospital, not every healthcare facility in the world has access to those types of freezers. Moderna, on the other hand, developed vaccine that could be stored at typical in typical freezers. And of course, there are many more of those. There are minus 80 freezers. And so you can even think about innovation in, in that case of we want, we want everyone who needs care and needs treatment to get access to it. But there are manufacturing distribution challenges entailed in getting everyone access to drugs that they need. And so there are many opportunities for innovation. A lot of people are thinking about it of how do you make drug manufacturing easier, faster, um, and, and cheaper? How do you make the distribution of drugs faster, cheaper, and better? 
Thanks so much, Sean. You know, I think you've really zoomed in on a key limitation of drug development, as you had talked about, where it's not just enough to make a drug that works, but you also have to make it easy to distribute and easy for patients to access. And not only with DICE, but also as uh, as you had talked about with the mRNA vaccines, the, the, the best use of a vaccine is only if it can get into the arm of a patient, right? It's there's no there's no use for a vaccine that's sitting in the shelves, um, and there's no use for a, a, an IL seventeen um, medication if it's like sitting on the shelves and it's not being injected or uh, being ingested by a patient. And so, um, thank you for that discussion. Um, I'm going to pass it off to my colleague Eric now, just to wrap up our discussion and and talk about sort of um, big picture questions about like venture capital and sort of how you're thinking about the future of healthcare. Yeah, thanks, Jingyi. Um, I think something that I, I find really fascinating is this evolving relationship between venture capital and academia. You know, academia really is uh, the birthplace of a lot of cutting-edge scientific innovations, and venture capital is that vehicle, that mechanism that funds and supports those innovations. Uh, Sean, can you speak to us how this relationship uh, might be changing right now and going forward? Absolutely. I think there's now a, a broader realization of the value of academic industrial partnerships. Obviously, I think the first, the poster child is of course the development of the COVID-19 vaccine, where a lot of the a lot of the fundamental work and how we manufacture mRNA and how we understand how it can be used to make vaccines were all done by academics. Um, but of course, taking those scientific insights and translating that into an actual product, that's something that industry really excels at. And investors oftentimes can bridge that gap where they can understand the particularly early stage investors can understand the scientific promise of a particular discovery and sketch out how that discovery could potentially be translated into an actual product. And so this is, of course, something that we at North Pond are working on. We have a collaboration with the Wies Institute here in Boston, where where uh, we work with the scientists at the Vs very closely in order to identify potential scientific projects um, that are very, very exciting, very, very innovative, and work with the academic team in order to translate those scientific insights into potential products. Um, because it's, you know, it's wonderful to have these scientific discoveries, but there's a lot of grunt work that happens that needs to happen in, in terms of doing a lot of additional replication experiments, doing a lot of controls, uh, testing out different formulations, testing out different therapeutic modalities in order to really understand how that app, how that scientific insight can actually be translated into an actual product that could really help people. And so I see these types of collaborations happening more and more in the future. I mean, we, we saw it already with um, the, the COVID-19 vaccine, which and, and a lot of therapeutics that have been developed um, in response to the pandemic. And I just see even more of them happening in the future. That's really great. And I, I wonder if you could speak to, um, you know, in, in terms of this evolving relationship between VC and, and, um, and academic founders, um, what a VC needs to do going forward to provide more and more value beyond capital alone? Yeah, it's an interesting question. Uh, I think the role of a venture capitalist is now is definitely more than just offering capital. It's offering 
advice and insight about how to, particularly in, in, in biotech, it's offering advice and insight into how to, how to overcome a lot of scientific challenges that biotech companies face. Because as venture capitalists, because of the nature of our work, we see a lot of trends in the marketplace. We talk to colleagues on the large biopharma side, we talk to other investors. And, and so we see, we talk to clinicians, and so we see how drugs are being used, where there are opportunities for growth, where there are holes in clinical paradigms. And, and then at least I'd like to think, at least for my work with my portfolio companies, that I'm able to communicate those insights in a way that is actionable for a portfolio company, where I can tell them about a particular area of research that say, oh, a couple of large pharmaceutical companies are very interested in investing and saying, you know, our platform could actually be applied in this particular area. Let's brainstorm ways in which we could do some quick experiments to see if our platform works in that area. And then, and then we can start to have those discussions with potential partners around how we can help them achieve their goals. And, and of course, you know, for it to be a, a business development relationship, for there to be a, a financial partnership there. Uh, but it's 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 like translating those market insights in and translating those business insights into particular steps that a portfolio company or that a, a small biotech company can take in order to operationalize those insights and and hopefully create a much stronger platform, create a, a number of additional products, and and create a, a much more financially strong company. Excellent. Yeah. Um, I totally agree with everything you said there. And um, one of the final questions that we have is on COVID-19. So what do you think are the effects of COVID-19 on the biotech industry and which effects do you think will last and, and which will not? And this can really pertain to anything that comes to the top of your mind, specific cop topics such as, you know, source or the amount of money going into biotech or whether COVID-19 has changed the profile of biotech uh, going forward in the future. Yeah, there are a lot of changes that happened to biotech as a result of COVID. Um, of course, I'm sure I'm sure um, everyone everyone can see how active the markets have been in biotech. I think that's really more uh, that's really more a function of the particular economic climate that we're in and the particular monetary environment that we're in. I think, and and so that can change depending on how the economy goes and depending on how monetary policy goes. I think things that really have fundamentally changed in biotech as a result of COVID really relates to the way in which we conduct research. So you look at, you look at how rapidly the vaccine developers were able to finish up their work, um, do their preclinical work, a lot of which was powered by technological approaches and in silico approaches. And then they figured out ways in which to accelerate the recruitment of patients for their clinical trials and accelerate the collection of data from those clinical trials in order to have actionable results um, that they could use to support um, an application to the FDA. So I think it's those aspects that really have fundamentally changed biotech, I think for the better, where we've now, we're now seeing in real time how we can really integrate um, technological and in silico approaches into the drug development process at an early stage in order to make the process go faster and, and operate more efficiently. And when it comes time for the, for the 
for experiments to be done or for um, clinical trials to be run, that a lot of that work could actually be done remotely. You can either you can either have it be automated by a robot in the case of in the case of preclinical scientific experiments, or in the case of clinical trials, you can do a lot of that work without needing to have patients come into a healthcare clinic in order to have labs run or have tests be done or have questionnaires filled out. You can do a lot of that work at home. And if you can eliminate these barriers to conducting experiments or conducting clinical research, you can make the process go a lot faster and you can oftentimes do it at a far lower cost. And so I think probably one of the silver linings of the, of the pandemic, and of, I mean, of course, the pandemic has been horrific for so many reasons in terms of its effects on effects on humanity and, and just the, the number of people's lives who've, who've been lost as a result of the pandemic. But if there is, if there is a silver lining, one of the silver linings is it's taught us the importance of moving quickly and moving efficiently. And it's given us the tools by which we can do that. And hopefully in the future, as we continue to discover new drugs, we can do it much more quickly because, you know, frankly, our patients are waiting. You know, we have patients out there that have an illness and they're waiting for a treatment. And so it's up to us in, in the life sciences community to deliver the cures that they need as quickly as possible. Thanks so much, Sean. And Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to the BIOS podcast. If you enjoyed it, please leave a review on your favorite podcasting platform. For more content, please visit bios.community or alix.vc.